Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place By me, where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall shall not be seen. On to verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but whom but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for um, allowing me to be here. I'm thankful for Jeremiah and Sandy. And uh, yeah, for 10 years, we, we have been meeting at conferences, looking across the room, saying hi, and, uh, and yet um, I'm grateful. When I found out that I was actually going to be in a cohort with Jeremiah, I was like, well, this is going to be great. We're going to get a chance to spend more time together. I didn't know it was going to involve 16 hours of driving, but it's fine. Uh, no, I'm really, really grateful. We had a great time in that trip. First time I've been in, in an electric vehicle, too, so I was pretty pumped about that. We were trying to figure that one out on a long drive. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into God's Word. Lord, thank you that you have, uh, you have shown us something here that's a reflection of um, the very word that we want to experience this morning, which is glory. And so help us to see it. Um, we just pray that you would come, Holy Spirit. Be near, fill us, and point us to the love of Christ, the love that took on our sin, the love that was raised to new life, 
so that we could know what resurrection life is like. So we ask for your presence this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I was in the living room with my wife looking out the front window this week, and um, right, uh, I was looking at her, and then out the window, right over her head, um, uh, right over the tree line was the Goodyear blimp. Um, I live four blocks from the Goodyear blimp. Uh, You've seen this thing, you know, when you watch like the Super Bowl, and they say, aerial coverage provided by, and you don't really see anything because it's in a dome, but you know, it's nice nice and pretty uh, over the, the big dome. Um, but yeah, I, I live right next to one of four blimps. So it's funny because I, it's flying all the time and I never pay attention to it. Though when I first moved there, it's a, it's a Goodyear blimp. Can you believe this? I, I can't believe I get to see this. And so I, I looked at it, it was two days ago, and I was like, huh, it is kind of funny. We live right here and I never pay attention to this. And why do I bring this up? You live on the Space Coast. See, all the people in South Florida, they don't pay attention to the blimp, but man, they're taking the little pictures at night of the, the sh- shuttle launches and the SpaceX launch, you know, these things. And some of you probably even work on some of these uh, projects. Um, and our folks think this is amazing, and I'm sure that there are nights it goes off and you don't even pay attention. Um, that probably is how it works. Some of you, you know, you take time for it, but some of you don't. I, I remember, so yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, was this 37th anniversary of the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion. You remember this? 1986, January 28th. Uh, one of the first news stories that I remember that just was, as a kid, I, just, I was like, what an awful tragedy. And what's happened is now that every time, um, anytime a launch happens and I watch it, sometimes I watch it on television and, or YouTube and I, I'm watching these things as they happen and I am just pouring sweat because there are humans on this thing, and they're going up into space, and I think it's incredible. Um, and I'm always kind of in knots, hoping for this launch to go well, and when it does, this sense of relief, but also this um, sense of wonder that stays with me. Um, in Bill Moyer's book, A World of Ideas, uh, Jacob Needleman remembers being an observer um, at the launch of Apollo 17 in 1972. Now, I'm going to say this. I have actually preached this sermon before with our congregation. I use these same, same things. So I'm not like writing these illustrations for uh, you, you all who uh, are in engineering here on the Space Coast. So, um, but he remembers watching uh, this in 1972. He says, it was a night launch, and there were hundreds of cynical reporters all over the lawn, drinking beer, wisecracking, waiting for this 35-story-high rocket to be launched. The countdown came, and then liftoff. And he said, the first thing you see is this extraordinary orange light, which is just at the limit of what you can bear to see. Everything is illuminated with this light, and then comes this slowly rising up, total silence, because it takes a few seconds for the sound to get to you, to come across. And then you hear this whoosh, and he said the hum just goes right through you. And he said, you could practically hear every jaw dropping, The sense of wonder fills everyone in this whole place, and this thing goes up, up, up. The first stage ignites this beautiful blue flame. It becomes like a star, but then you realize, as I said, there are humans on this thing, and then total silence. And here's what he said. All of these wisecracking, cynical reporters, as soon as this went up, it said they got up quietly, they helped each other up, they were kind, 
They opened doors for one another. They looked at each other, speaking quietly and interested. These were suddenly moral people because of a sense of wonder. There was something about this moment that caused them to be, even for a few minutes, different people. When we encounter something wonderful, or maybe the word glorious that we've used today, um, could it change the way we live? Could it change who we are? Maybe it depends on what kind of glorious that we're looking at. Can you imagine if you came into contact with the most glorious thing, what kind of person it would make us? And today we're looking at Exodus 33 and 34, dealing with the sense of wonder that Moses had when he was interacting with God. Now, if you, uh, you might be here exploring the Christian faith. Somebody invited you to uh, Crosspoint today, and so um, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of backstory of how we got here. Some of you may know this story, um, but uh, this in Exodus 33, this was the journey that Israel was making to the land that God had promised them after they had been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. So if you know the story that God's people ended up in Egypt through a miraculous set of events, and yet God used another miraculous set of events to lead them out of Egypt. And so they were on this journey to where God was uh, taking them. Moses was leading God's people. Um, and, uh, and so we've, had, uh, we've seen plagues. We've seen the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, we've seen this, uh, the, the Passover, which was an incredible event in the life of God's people. And on this journey... Um, in uh, Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22, um, it says that as God was going with his people, it says this, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people of God. So God, as he was leading his people, he took the form of, of a glory cloud, um, in the daytime, looked just probably like a cloud, bright, but at night, when the sun was gone, it looked like a pillar of fire. And after the Red Sea experience, God leads them to a place called Mount Sinai, where he's present with them um, through uh, lightning and thunder and, and smoke on the mountain of God. Everything about their purpose and their identity and their future and their freedom was really about what that cloud represented was about God's presence. God being present with them was what was important. So while Moses is on the mountain, God spends most of his time in Exodus 25 through 40 telling Moses how he is going to take this experience, the Sinai experience of God's presence, this, this kind of glory cloud of God's presence with them in a, in a more, little more permanent way. He, he told him, you're gonna build a tabernacle later at the temple. It was going to be the place where God's presence was going to, going to be. But in the middle of God telling Moses, this is how I, I'm going to choose to dwell with you. My presence will be with the people. Down uh, at the base of the mountain, all of the people had another idea of how God was going to be present. So if you know, know this, this story, they got all the, all the jewels and gold together and they built a golden calf and they said, this is how we think that it will be best that God is with us. By the way, that never works out. If you ever, um, see, if you create a God in your image or create a God in the image that you would like him to be, there's a chance that he's gonna hate all the same people you do. So, so it's not good that we build God in our image. And so um, in, in all of this, they're building 
a God in a way that they want him to be present. So God tells Moses, this is the plan that they're working on. And God responds by saying to Moses, stand back, I'm going to consume them. So God was going to pour his wrath out. And Moses interceded and he said, he asked, don't do it. And, and as he prayed for them, God relented. And, and then there was this fascinating negotiation between Moses and God. Because that gets us to Exodus chapter 33, part of the portion. I don't think we read it, but uh, we, we actually didn't re, uh, read it in our reading, but I want to read it for you here. In Exodus 33, 1 through 5, this is what, as, as God says, okay, all right, here's, here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to consume them, but this is what I will do. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Now listen what he says. He says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You're welcome, Jeremiah. Uh, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should show up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So here's what God says to him. I will give you everything you want. I'll give you military and political power and success. I will give you the land flowing with milk and honey. I'll give you economic success and prosperity and wealth. I'll give you power and wealth, but I won't go with you. That sounds like the dream religion around here, doesn't it? I'll give you everything you want. You just don't have to worry about messing with me. You get all the help you want, you get all the wealth, you get all the power without doing all that hard work of drawing near to God and examining yourself and making sure everything in your life revolves around him. Nope, just get what you, get what you want. The setup God offers Moses and Israel is what most people want. They do believe in God, they want help from God, they, they certainly don't want every single thing in their lives revolving around him. They don't want him like smack dab in the middle, but just kind of on the periphery, just in case something goes wrong. And by they, I mean we. By they, I mean me. Don't we often have some concept of God but not seeing him as the the goal of life, the purpose of life? Uh, One research firm says that 82% of people believe that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in Scripture. It's not. See, and they say that see God is someone who intervenes along the way when things get bad and maybe gives us a little moral direction. John Piper says this, would you be satisfied when you, when you died to go to heaven, to have every, everyone there you wanted, your health restored to its prime, to have everything about you uh, that you dislike fixed, to have every recreation you ever dreamed of available to you, to have infinite resources of money to spend, would you be satisfied if God weren't there? See, this is what Moses was being offered. 
And look at verse uh, 14 and 15. God says, my presence, uh, it, uh, well, this is, so Moses, before I read that, but Moses, he said, no, 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 this is not, this is not going to happen. Moses knew better. Verse 14 and 15, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. This is what Moses knew. Moses would have none of the first offer. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And here's what he's saying. If we don't have your glory, if we don't have your face, if we don't have your presence, it is better that we die here. Because it will not matter if we have all the success. It will not matter if we have all the wealth. It will not matter if we have all the money. It will not matter if your presence is is not with us. And then he has this great question in verse 16. He says, for how will it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the, on the earth? Now, here's the distinction in the world. See, out there, if I am wealthy, if I am beautiful, if I'm powerful, if I have these things, then I'm somebody. It gives me an identity, doesn't it? And Moses is actually saying, no, 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 I know better. Those things are not things that really can give you an identity. Those things are not things that really can give you satisfaction. They really can't, think about it. They're the things that we work so hard for, and yet, once we get them, what happens? Well, we, at the very least, we just want more. It's never enough. It's, this idea of glory, it means weight. Things, things weighty. Think about the weighty things that we have in our lives that are not very weighty. They don't actually matter, and yet they, they feel like they matter so much. The reason Moses says this is because wealth and power and popularity and all the things that God is saying he'll give them, there are forms of what our culture says are important and significant. We need this a deep assurance that we matter, but the thing is we would be consumed by these things. Think about what would happen if God gave us everything we wanted. It would consume us. It, it, it would kill us. God offers to give them everything that they ever thought that they needed to matter, and Moses knew better because human life is meaningless without the presence of God. He knew that the absence of God would be and is hell. See, this idea of presence, this word means faith. The face of God is what we were made for. Moses is saying that there's a difference between believing in God in general and experiencing the omnipresence of God and kind of his everywhere presence and knowing God personally and experiencing his presence, his face. And so this is what he asked for. And, and look at God's response. In verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Here's the thing, that is what you need. To know that you have found favor in God's sight, that is what you will ultimately need. So what would happen if God gave you a sense in which you had favor in his sight? Think about this. You have found favor in my sight, I know you by name. Like this was a very personal moment between God and Moses. 
if you knew that you had the favor of God, would you then be limited on what you could ask for? Would you then feel that you had to like dial it back a little bit? So this is what Moses did. He's like, if I have found favor with God, what is there, like what are the limits? So, So look at what he does in verse 18. So then Moses swings for the fence and he goes, would you show me your glory? Like, could I see it all? Now, God says no, but, but look, look at how, how this works. When, when, when God would descend in the glory cloud and talk with Moses, he would descend in front of him. And it was a way in which Moses was saying to, in a sense, let me, kind of let me stick my head inside the cloud. Let me see you. Let me see what this is really, like the weight of this. This is what we're made for. The old, the old uh, creed says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why God created us. So Moses is tapping into something that was at the core of reality. To be smitten with God's glory is to be smitten with his beauty. It's to find him beautiful, not just useful. It's to find God satisfying just for who he is. It's to worship him for himself, not for what I get out of it. God isn't a means to an end, he is the end. One philosopher writes about beauty, he says, to experience something as beautiful means pleasure in an object without regard for its purpose. When you see something and you get pleasure, not because it leads you to something else, just because being in its presence, just enjoying it and appreciating it, it's satisfaction and a pleasure in and of itself apart from any other purpose, you are now experiencing it as beautiful. A misplaced affection Often we have this idea that God is a means to an end. You know how you know God is a means to an end for you? If you are doing the right things and then something bad happens and you ask the question, God, why are you doing this? Don't you know that I have done all these things? What, what you realize is that the, the, the lean of your heart is for God to be useful to you You do these things so that I can manipulate God into doing this for me, so that God could give me an easy life, so that God could give me no hardship, so that I could avoid suffering. That's the problem. It doesn't happen. But when you're in the presence of something beautiful and you're enjoying it for what it is, you have the strong sense that there's real meaning, that you have real meaning. Timothy Keller says this, Moses knows this in this moment. He's he's talking about about this, um, this particular text. And Moses suddenly realizes, wait a minute, if that's what happens when I experience the beauty of the oceans, the beauty of diamonds, the beauty of the stars, what would it be like to see the absolute beauty of God, of which all oceans, all diamonds, and all stars are just a dim reflection? What would it be like to actually have overwhelming meaningfulness inflicted on the soul permanently because I'm seeing the beauty of God for who he is? That's what I want. Show me your glory. We now realize it's only in the face of God the deepest longings of the human soul can be fulfilled. It's actually seeing the face of God looking at us in love, the only set of eyes in the world that matter looking at us and loving us. Had a, um, some of you have gone through, uh, I believe you guys have books out here, Gospel-Centered Life, uh, gospel-centered discipleship, these kind of things. And um, I remember I went through this sonship material years ago uh, written by these guys at at, uh, World Harvest, and uh, there was a question in it 
that someone had asked me before, and they said, Brad, when God, when God looks you, what is the look on his face? God thinks of you. What's the look on his face? Like, if you could imagine, personify this, what's the look on his face? I'm generally just kind of a shame-filled, guilty person. Anybody else? Just a couple of us, right? No, nobody's admitting it. But. And so there is this, like, general sense that the way I answer this question is, like, disappointed. This is before I really, like, really got the gospel, really understood the gospel. It's like, yeah, I just kind of generally just kind of have this, this look of disappointment. And he said, no, no, no. If the gospel is true and you are in Christ, if everything about Jesus is true of you, what, what, is, what is the look on his face? If everything that is true about Christ is true of you? Oh, that was new satisfied. What would it be like to look at the satisfaction of God, knowing that Christ had done everything that I could not do? What if the only set of eyes in the world that really, truly mattered looked at me? With the kind of love that was steadfast. You know, that changes a person. That helped me understand a little more of what this glory is really about. I want you to look at God's response. In verse 19 through 23 of Exodus 33, and he said, God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, um, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand and, until I've passed. And I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So, so God says, no, you're not gonna get all of it yet. Moses says, I wanna see your glory. God says, no, you can't. I'll show you the back of my goodness And look at what happens in verse six and seven of Exodus 34. And the Lord passed before him. So he covered him up and he proclaimed. Listen to this. So, so maybe, maybe close your eyes. You don't, don't even read along. Because you, you're covered by the hand of God. And he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's, that's what God says. This is the way that God describes himself. You can open your eyes. So God says, this is what my glory is like. I'm forgiving, but I never let sin go unpunished. I am absolutely loving, and I am absolutely just. He says, I'm completely gracious and completely true. I am totally loving and I'm totally just. I forgive and I refuse to let any sin go unpunished. Now, here's the thing. They're all kinds. If you, ask, if you go outside today and you, you ask a random person on the street, it'd be a little weird, but you can go ahead and do it. Like, what is God like to you? And they'll describe you like, I think God is just like, you know, God is loving and God just like lets things go and God's really cool. Or I, I, don't, I don't believe, like, I don't know if I believe in all that stuff about justice and, and, and a God who, uh, God of wrath. I just, I don't know, I'm not sure if I believe this. Unless we see that God is both, as he has described himself, 
we will never get his glory. Because it's almost like a contradiction. How can someone be infinitely loving and want to pardon and infinitely just and can never, ever, ever, ever let sin go unpunished? How could that happen? It's not a contradiction, it's a tension. The goodness of God is in his kindness and in his justice. There's no way that Moses could really understand the tension. I'm sure Mother's like, how did, what, is, what does this mean? Do you know that we today get to see something that Moses did not? Like Moses was not allowed to see it. And yet, in John chapter one, in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus, he says this, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, this idea of the presence of God, among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John picks up on this and he says, do you know that we get to see what Moses didn't? Like we have a picture now of what Moses was not really sure of how this was gonna come together. John is saying that through Jesus Christ, we can see the glory and beauty of God that Moses was not allowed to see. Moses could only see a part of it, but we can see right in that there is a life-shaping, life-changing view of the beauty and glory of God in Christ that Moses was not able to see. How could God be infinitely just and punish all sin and infinitely loving and forgive and pardon us? It was at the cross. It was at the cross of Jesus. Jesus cries out. Do you remember when he says this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what this means? On the cross, Jesus Christ gets the cosmic nightmare of every human being. Think about this. The great exchange 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. The great exchange on the cross, this is what happens. If you're like exploring the Christian faith, this is about as basic as I can get. On the cross, Jesus Christ experiences your sin, the wrath of God for sin, your shame, your guilt. I told you earlier, I deal with shame. I carry it. Can you imagine, if you're a person that experiences the same thing, can you imagine Jesus experiencing the infinite shame for you and for me and for everyone in this room and for the world? I mean, it's enough of my own shame to make me spiral. Can you imagine the depth in which Jesus, we say it in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. I know there's debate over what that means. That sounds like hell to me the spiral in which he experienced. For him to only cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus experiences this cosmic nightmare that God turns his face away. He got what you and I deserve, the loss of the presence of God. He, he got what you and I fear, absolute insignificance, cosmically ignored. Why? So you and I could matter eternally. Because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become, we could receive, we could have counted to us the righteousness of Jesus. Can you believe this? The good news of the gospel is that the righteousness of Jesus, everything that he deserves is counted to sinners like us. It is unbelievable. 
It is the most ridiculous thing ever. Every other religion says, here, here's how you perform in order to get to, to God. And this one comes along, this Christianity, it's crazy, it's ridiculous, comes along and says, no, that's not it. There's nothing you could actually ever do enough. And here's what happens. Jesus goes to the cross for you. He gets everything that you deserve so that in him, when you come to him with empty hands of faith, you get everything that he has. Unreal. I, I'm still amazed by this. When somebody asks me, okay, if you can personify it and you can see what is the look on his face, you go, I get the smile. There's no reason that should happen. I know too much about me. I'm not gonna share most of it with you. And he does, and I still get it. That is glorious. That's what Moses couldn't see. It's what I get to see. If Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that's how God can be infinitely just because all sin was punished there. That's how God could be infinitely loving because he took it in himself. He absorbed it at infinite cost to himself. That's beautiful. Believing in a God who just loves everybody and dismisses everything, that's not beautiful. Believing in a God who is only just and who have to, you have to perform for him, that is not beautiful. Only in the gospel do we see the beauty that Moses had hoped for. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all, see Moses had to go in, he had to, there had to be some kind of covering. There's no way he could see. But we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, here's what it does to us. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That one night when all those guys saw the, the shuttle go up, saw the rocket go up, and it was so transformative of a moment for them, they just became kinder people if it, for a few minutes. If we see the unveiled face of the glory of God, what kind of people would that make us? You, you, you got up January 1st going, all right, New Year's resolutions, here we go. It's the 28th. 29th, you've, you've messed up all, all of you by now, right? Hadn't made it. This is what you need. You can be as resolute as you want. This is what we need. Let me say one last thing. I've been thinking about this this weekend. Not only do we get the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but when Jesus ascended, he gives us his Holy Spirit. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead you get everything that Jesus has and you get the spirit of God. That sounds like pretty good news to me. That sounds like a life that I don't actually have to live on my own. That sounds like a life that I don't have to explore glory on my own anymore. That I don't have to look somewhere else for satisfaction. And so let me, uh, I'm gonna pray for us. And I'm gonna pray, come Holy Spirit, Point us to the finished work of Jesus. So pray with me. God, with empty hands of faith, we pray, come Holy Spirit. That you would fall on us and you would fill us. That you would point us as you always do 
to the person and work of Jesus. That you would point us to the cross. That you would point us to the place where guilt and shame fell on Christ. But you would point us there with these empty hands of faith so that we would receive exactly what you've promised. That we would receive the freedom that comes in Jesus, that we would receive the glory, that we would receive the transformation that we've been looking for in everything else and everywhere else. And Holy Spirit, that you would fill us so that we would be able to live in our transformation. by the power of the cross, by the power of the resurrection, by the spirit who did these things, raised Jesus from the dead. We would have a weight of glory beyond all comparison today. And we pray this in his name that is above every name. Amen.